This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and more importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Annie Rachel Royson, who is the author of a brand new uh, Rutledge publication, a fascinating work um, called um, Texts, Traditions, and Sacredness, um, Cultural Translation in Krista Purana. Um, Annie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Raj. Uh, so uh, without further ado, we have to put on the radar of our listeners this fascinating work about which your book um, which your book dives into. Krista Purana, what is the Krista Purana? Uh, the Krista Purana is a 17th century retelling of the Bible in the Marathi language. It has... 10,962 verses and was composed by an Englishman who came to uh, the western coast of India in uh, the late 16th century, uh, lived and died here and learned Marathi and and its literary traditions well enough to be able to retell uh, the biblical narrative uh, in this beautiful OV meter, the meter that the same poets of Marathi were using at the time. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's a fascinating work. And I argue that it is the earliest translation of the Bible uh, into a South Asian language, even though it's in poetic form. Uh, it is the first ever retelling uh, that we have in a South Asian language. Um, it's a fascinating work. And often people, uh, when they hear that an Englishman came to India so early on uh, during the Portuguese regime in Goa and uh he learned Marathi well enough to be able to write a work of such epic proportions, of such literary beauty. Uh, they stop at that, and the attempt was to uh, dive a little deeper into this text and learn what it could teach us about sacred text translation, about the literary traditions of the period, and so on. Mm. Could you tell us a bit, uh, at least uh, what little bit we know of, uh, a bit about this figure behind the work, um, something about his background or training or motivations, and what prompted him uh, and enabled him to do this translation? Um, yes, and um, this has been one of my favorite topics to speak about for about a decade now. So I think people who know me are tired of listening to this. Uh, well, thankfully, you'll have many more people on the podcast who haven't heard you before. So you're, you're in luck. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. Uh, and when I was, uh, this this book actually comes out of my doctoral research that I did at the Indian Institute of Technology, Gandhinagar. And um, 
when I was writing my thesis and later uh, revising it uh, to make it into this book, um, I wondered how much of Stevens I should put in his life. And uh, uh, I decided that it is important that we speak about Stevens and his life uh, because it is critical to the way we understand the text as well. Uh, so as I mentioned, he was an Englishman, he was a Jesuit. Um, and he was living in England at the time when the Catholics were being persecuted under Elizabeth's uh, regime and his dear friend Edward Pound was imprisoned and he managed to go to Rome and uh, joined the Jesuit order and studied uh, the humanities uh, before he was allowed to go to India for missionary work. Uh, so uh, he arrived in India in 1579. Um, and in a letter to his father, he mentions, uh, he describes a very uh, eventful journey by ship uh, and um, how he landed on the coast of Goa. His um, early impressions, his first impressions of the locals that he met there, of the plants, uh, I have a whole chapter on that, uh, of, the, of the plants, of how the people spoke and dressed, very interesting um, orientalist uh, descriptions of uh, the land and the people. Uh, so he was a fascinating figure. Um, and uh, we have uh, records that show that by 1594, he was fluent in the language and he was able to listen to confessions in lingua canary, that is in Konkani. So he was uh, fluent in the language by then. So uh, he was also one of the earliest people to uh, notice the similarities between Sanskrit and Latin, the grammatical similarities, you know, something that would later become uh, a whole field of study uh, in linguistics. Uh, so uh, he was fascinated with the languages and uh, the literary traditions of the region. The Jesuits also got some training um, in the local uh, literary genre. Uh, so I'm sure they were required to read uh, some Marathi poetry. So for example, uh, his work is a lot more similar to Nyaneshwar's style. Um, and Nyaneshwar wrote in uh, the 13th century. Uh, and, uh, and it's a lot more similar to Nyaneshwar's that, than his contemporary Tukaram another Marathi same poet. So uh, it, that that shows that, you know, he was reading these early Marathi poets and uh, getting familiarity with their work. Uh, but however you look at it, he's an outlier because no one was doing a work of this of this kind, even among the Catholic priests in the uh, in the Portuguese mission in Goa, he worked for a very brief time uh, in what is now Bombay. Uh, no one was even attempting to retell the whole story of the Bible, most of the Old Testament and most of the New Testament. Other people were writing songs, writing catechisms, uh, writing liturgies, uh, translating uh, a lot of. Uh, uh, church material from the West, but no one was attempting something of this order. So he's an unusual figure. There are some, there are to my mind, some profound implications um, uh, uh, on the fact that, regarding the fact that he chose to put on a genre. 
into which to render the narratives <laughs> of, of, uh, of uh, Old and New Testament. Um, yes. And so do you want to say a quick word um, about the Purana genre and why do you think he might have chosen this, 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 this idiom of expression? Um, again, we have a whole chapter on that. As you see, chapter three is a discussion on the whole genre problem. My short answer would be, uh, because that was what the Marathi saint poets were doing. Uh, this was the age, what uh, what Sheldon Pollock has called the age of vernacularization, and different people have different um, terminology to talk about this early modern period in India. And a lot of uh, literature was being translated from Sanskrit into the regional languages. And for Marathi as well, this was a very important period where uh, Marathi was emerging as a literary language. Uh, that, that is what people like Nyaneshwar were doing. They were inaugurating this age where Marathi was uh, evolving from being merely a spoken language to uh, a literary language. It was coming into its own as a literary idiom. So uh, the simple answer is that he was copying uh, what the Marathi saint poets were doing. He was using that uh, genre because that is what uh, the literate uh, converts of Goa were used to reading. Um, it's also important to note here that uh, the people who were the early converts in Goa were Brahmins, as it is mentioned in the Krista Purana as well. And these were literate people who were banned from reading their old Puranas. So there is a verse where uh, the listeners go to the Padri Guru, the narrator, and say, you have banned the old Puranas. So what are we going to read now? Give us new Puranas. And so the Padre Guru decides very benevolently to you know, write a new Purana for them. And even though it sounds uh, all sweet and idealized here, uh, it is true that uh, these were people uh, who had their old texts taken away from them. And in a sense, they were um, uprooted from their uh, literary traditions from their cultural traditions and they were looking for roots and they were attempting to uh, understand this new faith that were that they were now finding themselves in uh, and many in many instances forcefully so uh, uh, this was an attempt uh, he he they were they were uh, able to get the thrill of a new story uh, in the familiar genre uh, of the, the that the Marathi saint poets were using, uh, but then I have also argued that the Purana itself is a genre that is open uh, to uh, what I call novelization in the book. It mm. it has spaces for um, new stories, new narratives, new voices to come in, and which is probably why these regional poets were all picking the Purana in the first place to tell their own stories, while also giving the story a certain validation and a sacredness um, in the literary tradition. Brilliant. Uh, I typically uh, I typically play a naive uh, podcast host. Uh, this is my, my, my dharma in this moment, but I'll toggle uh, over into scholar mode just for a quick second. It just so happens that my area is... Uh, uh, Puranas and the and the epics and with, with without question without question there is um, 
they, 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 they. what confounds studies of um, the Puranas are the very notion of text and how we think of text and the orality and fluidity. You know, the, the Sanskrit Puranas are very much the residue of an organic paradigm, you know, uh, arguably, uh, which which is only completed with the with the with the absent Puranika or someone to bring them to life. So, without question, I think it is the fluidity of the Puranas, and and he must have grokked also. Uh, yes, clearly, you know, this this is a line that people are using. You know, this is a means of advertising. You know, let's use Facebook. Everyone's on Facebook. Let's use uh, you know Instagram. Everyone's <laughs> on Instagram. Yes, clearly, but no, it, it, he he's. He's such a brilliant individual. He must have grokked um, the, the, the what I think of as one of the core um, um, mandates of Purana, which is dissemination on mass of theological and philosophical ideas, and and sort of just yeah, uh, pitching them in an unassuming, charming tales. Uh, so it's fascinating. Now. Before I bore too much of our audience, I'll switch back into podcast to, to naive podcast host mode. Um, I can't, uh, I don't have Marathi, so I haven't been able at all to look at the text. So I wonder if you could comment a little bit on the the world of the text and um, uh, both the you know the quality and the the the, the, the beauty of the uh, of his rendition, but also some of the decisions he makes. Uh, there are particular aspects of the Bible that he that he emphasizes or de-emphasizes, he leaves out. You know, could you say a little bit about the world within the text for us? Uh, y- yes, yes. Uh, that was one of the fascinating uh, parts of uh, this research for me, to see the decisions he made as a translator, uh, because uh, it's a dangerous task he's undertaking. And uh, anyone who was, uh, I, 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 I was written, I have written about this in another paper, whether it's Nyaneshwar who's bringing the Bhagavad Gita into Marathi for the first time, or it is Stevens three centuries down the line who is uh, retelling the Bible into Marathi. These people are all aware, and you can sense it in their text, that they're doing very dangerous work, um, especially since for Stevens, he had to get licenses from the church to be able to uh, write it, print it. And we have letters where he's writing to the superior general uh, for typefaces in Marathi so that he could print it in the script of the region, which could not happen. This is this text, by the way, is uh, was first printed uh, in Roman script. So it is a it is a Marathi retelling of the Bible in Roman script. So the complexity- uh, I find that so fascinating. It's, it's mind boggling, actually. It's- it's the, the the complexity is just just keep piling on in this. Um, and there were times during my doctoral research when my supervisor used to joke that of all the texts in the world, you had to choose the one with ten thousand nine hundred and sixty-two verses. And um, oh, you, then you're at least as brave as this author who translates it. <laughs> Yes. So, uh, uh, and uh, and uh, but both of us thoroughly enjoyed the journey as well. But uh, the the complexities, the layers that you find uh, while studying this text are mind-boggling. And uh, Stevens obviously has conversion on his mind, and uh, two things were happening. One, the forced conversions that happened. Uh, 
during uh, the early Portuguese regime. There was the horror of the Goan Inquisition that they were trying to live down. Uh, and then uh, priests like Stevens who were actually in the field knew that these people's hearts were not converted. So now works like the Krista Purana are an attempt to convert the heart. So you have your baptized local but what are you going to do with the unconverted heart? So here is a text where you that you write in the Lok Bhasha, and uh, he says in the introduction, in the prose introduction, he says, "Bhavartya Barveya Krista Vanu Hya Purana Swamiya Jesu Krista Tarakachi Kathaliliyahe." And then he goes on to say, so he's saying, "Believers, good Christians, this Purana is a Purana of our Savior Jesus Christ." And then he goes on to say that uh, I have not used the high Marathi. I have tried to use. Uh, what the people speak, so it can make sense to more people. And this is also the OB meter. The OB meter is a very lilting sing-song meter. So it's very easy to commit to memory. Uh, and there are records that was, this was also sung in churches. But you see Stevens's uh, discomfort uh, at several points uh, in the text. For example, in, uh, uh, in the instance from the New Testament where Jesus turns water into wine, he goes into this long winded justification of why wine is mentioned at all. And he uh, men, uh, talks about how in those countries, in cold countries, they drink wine. Uh, but in India, we don't have to because we have a lot of clean water. And it's a sort of long winded justification. But, it, but it, it's so, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I rarely interrupt my, my guests, but I, I find that profound because it's because he's not just translating the words, he's he's imbibed the ethos of the land. And yes. he's, he's he's grokked this. And he's yes, he's he's he, it I find that utterly fascinating to say. It is it is it is fascinating. So uh, there are instances like that. I will uh, uh, give one or two examples like this, and then go to the Vaikuntha example, um, or just examples where you know fig leaf is not translated as fig leaf but as banana leaf, uh, where you know uh, Adam and Eve uh, Adam and Eve cover themselves uh, with banana leaves, which practically makes more sense. But uh, any uh, Bible translator would, uh, and th this has been, uh, you know, th this has been done by other translators. For example, there's a Malay translation uh, that did something similar. So the, the, this was a strategy of localization that a lot of translators were probably using at the time. So there are choices like that. Uh, and the most important decision for me, and that is uh, for me, my favorite chapter on landscapes as well, uh, the way the Goan landscape seeps into the biblical narrative. Uh, and that that is one translatorial decision that fascinates me and uh, still haunted by it, still working on it in ways. Uh, and it was very difficult for me at the time to find a vocabulary to talk about this as well. Uh, so when you read the Krista Purana, you uh, are unsure where you are. Am I in Palestine? I, am I in Goa? What, what is this landscape? It is a mixture of uh, biblical landscapes and uh, Goan landscapes. So you have plants, trees, birds uh, from Goa uh, and examples which makes this um, the story more believable uh, to 
the local audience uh, which is listening to him. He says at the beginning of the Purana that uh, this was told over a course of 52 Sundays. So for 52 Sundays, people kept coming back uh, to the church and the Padri Guru, the narrator, would tell the story. So uh, uh, ways of making the story revetting to his audience, uh, as would any storyteller in any oral tradition, uh, probably. Uh, One of the most beautiful uh, scenes for me is when he describes the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, when uh, the people of Israel go back and they find their city burnt down and a beautiful uh, description of uh, how the city is desolate, but all the plants and the snakes and the landscapes are going and uh, elements that the locals could identify with. Um, but one one uh, particular translatorial decision that I spent some time on is Stevens's use of Vaikuntha. Vaikuntha, as you know, uh, in the Puranic tradition is the abode of Vishnu, uh, but he translates Vaikuntha into the throne of the creator God, the Christian God, very important and anxiety uh, inducing translatorial decision right there uh, where you translate the Christian heaven as Vaikuntha and you cleanly remove Vishnu from the throne and place Christ as Vaikuntha Nayak um, in uh, Vaikuntha. So uh, that is that is one very important, important translatorial decision. Uh, but what is important is also uh, what is left untranslated. So there are there is translatability and there is untranslatability. And untranslatability can be of two ways. One is where you're unable to find an equivalent term to translate something. And the other is where you refuse to translate something. And others like Vicent Raphael have written about it uh, very profoundly in uh, um, when he's talking about Tagalog Bible translation. Uh, so terms like uh, spiritu santu, the Holy Spirit, uh, or core terms that are uh, related to church doctrine are left untranslated, uh, either in Latin or in Portuguese. So in this, in that sense, this text is also very multilingual. You find Marathi, you find Konkani, you find a bit of Portuguese, you find some Latin. Uh, so it, in a sense, that is also a translatorial decision where he, uh, where uh, untranslatability will stand guard against the dangers of translation, because mm. what you're doing, uh, what you're doing by picking a, a genre like the Purana is, you are submitting your true in quotation marks true Christian text to the generic features of the Purana. You're afraid that your story is going to transform. It's going to change uh, when you're doing that. And so you need this kind of untranslatability to stand guard. And this, this kind of anxiety, the anxiety of the translators, translators seen again in the in the so the Krista Purana is divided into two parts, the Paile Purana and the Dusre Purana, uh, roughly corresponding uh, to the Old Testament and the New Testament, though Christ features. Uh, very prominently even in the first Purana. So in the in the Dusre Purana, there is this scene where a wise Brahman stands up and questions the Padri and he says, you've told us about limbo and how souls go into limbo. 
and the things that the Lord of Vaikuntha told the angels. But how did you know? Who told you? So it's a very simple question. Uh, did you adorn the story poetically with your imagination? If you're doing that, how can we trust this book? So this is Stevens. This Stevens's own uh, anxiety as a translator that he's trying to justify uh, here. And then the Padri said, "Okay, good question, and I've understood your question. So now let me try to answer it." And he says, "The excellent scriptures don't have a speck of falsehood in it, but uh, we embellish, like like a painter uses beautiful colors in a painting. We embellish." a story poetically, to make it beautiful, to make it interesting for you. We're not, we're not like the poets or the Gentiles who compose their books waywardly. And we would not mis mix falsehood in it. But he, so he's justifying his beautification of the text. He's justifying his uh, the liberties that he's taken with the biblical uh, narrative. Uh, so these are some of the examples I gave you of the translatorial decisions that he took. I don't know if I answered your question sufficiently, so feel free to. Oh, the, the, the <laughs> questions are always meant to be generative and we'll just see where we end up. But uh, no, the, no, the great. Uh, it was a great discussion. Um, one wonders, you know, one really wonders after this figure's view of biblical narratives insofar as whether or not he sees them as what we might consider today something as along the lines of mythological or malleable or uh, transplantable to different soil or using different idioms. It seems that there might be aspects of uh, theological aspects that are to be preserved and fixed and not translated. And yet, uh, by virtue of the liberties he takes, one wonders uh, after how he views biblical narratives. It's fascinating, actually. Uh, for, uh, yes, yes, the, the, that, that is actually a very interesting question. Uh, for him, there is no doubt, and he says this in the prose uh, introduction as well, that the Bible is the truth and Christ is the Savior. So, uh, and he, he follows many of the conventions of the Marathi saint poets, where it begins with an invocation to God and the saints, follows the exact same con poetic conventions that these Marathi saints poets were, saint poets were using. Uh, and then he writes this beautiful invocation uh, to the Marathi language. He says, of all the languages of this land, I found Marathi most beautiful and most worthy. And those lines are beautiful. And anyone who's written even a line about the Krista Purana has reproduced it, uh, compares Marathi to musk among perfumes uh, and the mogra among flowers. Uh, so he, he says that uh, Marathi is the most, most beautiful language worthy of, uh, of, of this kind of story. But... He is very sure that when people read his Purana, they would know what the truth is and what is the only way to salvation. Uh, so for, for Stevens, it is very clear uh, that this is, this is a text meant to show the people that this is the only true way to mukti, uh, to salvation, and uh, they have to believe in Christ. 
but there are other problems uh, that he's he's addressing through this as well. Uh, so he's he's using the biblical narrative to tell the people that uh, you can use this to live your life. For example, there were people. Uh, the, the converts were not treated well by the Hindus who were not converted. They were they were called Bartlele, polluted people, and they had to face ostracization, a lot of uh, uh, problems from those around them. So he uses uh, biblical examples. He uses the story of Joseph, uh, various other biblical passages to tell them that you know if you if you bear suffering for the true path that you have chosen. Um, this is like an ark which will take you to heaven. So you have to trust the process. So he's he's uh, he's also using biblical passages to uh, tell them that this idol worship you've been doing up until now, um, it is wrong and it will lead to destruction of your land. So uh, he is trying to uh, stay true to the biblical narrative, but he can't resist from time to time uh, from, uh, from using it uh, to solve some of the practical problems of the new converts uh, mm. in the region. Could you comment on the dialogical dimension of the Krista Purana? It is dialogic. <laughs> it, 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 it is... Uh, it, I didn't let you complete your question, did I? No, 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 that's fine. No, in, insofar as... The, 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 Adopting the idiom of Puranas where there's always a questioner. Yes. You know, could you talk about his use of that throughout the Krista Purana or is there a primary narrative? Are there multiple questioners? How, what does that look like? Yes, there is the, uh, the narrator, the Padri Guru, who's telling the story, but there are questioners who... Uh, stand up from time to time. Uh, like the example I gave you earlier of the wise Brahman who asked him, where did you get the story from? There are multiple questioners uh, who will stand up from time to time and uh, ask a question about the Purana or ask for an explication, uh, an explanation of the story uh, that he has just told uh, Sometimes there are conversation between angels, two characters in the story. Uh, for example, when um, again, one of the most uh, powerful passages in the Krista Purana, which I've also translated and put as an appendix in the book, uh, where Lucifer is revolting and the other angels are telling him uh, that he should remember where he came from and he should not uh, commit this foolishness. So there are multiple questioners and the form is very dialogic uh, and the Padri Guru is in constant uh, conversation with, with his listeners in the Krista Purana. And this, this also is important because often in this kind of sacred text translation, especially in colonial settings, the listener or the receiver of the translation is painted as this powerless, uh, mute recipient who's sitting there and quietly receiving what uh, the colonizer missionary has to give. But in the Krista Purana, you see a very, uh, very uh, dialogic format where uh, the Padre Guru's story is forced to change because of the questions that are asked. Uh, for example, there is one question uh, uh, 
uh, that a Brahman asks, he says, why are we being punished for Adam's sins? If Adam committed sin in uh, the beginning, what, what is God and unjust? Why should we bear the brunt of it? And then it's a very interesting example uh, from the caste system where he says that, you know, like a Brahmin will have Brahmin children and a Shudra will have Shudra children. Uh, so a sinful person will have sinful offspring. So see how casually caste is woven in into the narrative. But it is the question from the local that brings in this color. Uh, so it, it is... Uh, it is an extremely dialogic text. It is dialogic also in the sense that the dialogue is between the genres. So it's dialogue between the genre of the Purana and the biblical tradition. So it's not dialogue just in terms mm. of conversation between people, but the dialogue is also an encounter between these two, two very powerful traditions uh, and what happens to the story when these... Uh, two traditions uh, encounter each mm. other. Uh, and now that we're talking about caste, there is also a brilliant uh, passage where the snake is described. The snake, Stevens' snake is a resplendent, glorious creature, the, the colors that uh, he has described. And um, uh, it's important to remember that this Goa has um, a very very powerful snake worshipping tradition. So this was also a way of saying that uh, the snake is the evil one. It may look glorious and resplendent to you, but uh, it is the symbol of all that is evil. Mm. Do we have a sense of the reception or efficacy of this text? Um, yes. So Various people have written about, for example, there are letters the Jesuits have written when they're writing the official reports of the work done in Goa, where they say that Thomas Estevao has written this beautiful work. And not only the Christians, but the Hindus also speak of it with much pride. So uh, there are, we have uh, letters like that. So it was received with much uh, joy, uh, even though we know from his letters that he struggled to get it printed in local script, and then it had to be printed in Roman script. Uh, it it was it was uh, very well received, and we know that because a lot of Christian Puranas began to be written after that. For example, uh, Etienne de la Croix, Peter Purana, and a slew of Puranas that came in the centuries after. So this this began to be a model that was then emulated in the especially in the Catholic missions uh, after Stevens. Uh, and all all Marathi and Konkani literary histories mention Krista Purana with a lot of reverence. Obviously. Uh, in the backdrop of the violence as well uh, uh, of the Portuguese administration, uh, but all of them uh, allude to its literary beauty. Even uh, Protestant uh, Bible translation histories uh, mention the Krista Purana, that there was this beautiful text uh, that poetically retold the Bible. So uh, it, it's a strange uh, situation where people have 
they always mention it with a lot of reverence, but there are not many studies, or until recently, there have not been many studies. There was uh, a doctoral work that was done in Rome in the 1940s, but no one has been able to trace it. There's Nelson Falcao's work, uh, there's the doctoral thesis that S.G. Malshe wrote in the 1960s. And then we have more recent work from Sweden uh, as well. So uh, uh, it's, it's a strange fascination, but not many people have done uh, very in-depth uh, studies of the text. So it's, it's, it, was, it, is, it has also always been revered. Uh, but... Uh, there's also a strange kind of invisibility when you go looking for Stevens in Goa and the text, because uh, I, I think it's probably because the Portuguese later banned uh, all regional texts. And that is probably when uh, the singing of the Christopurana might have uh, stopped in the churches of the region. Uh, but it is said that the Christians of Mangalore uh, used to sing it during um, uh, the Shashti events of their children and uh, when Tipu Sultan imprisoned Christians in Seringapatnam, apparently they sang verses uh, to uh, stay strong through the imprisonment. So yes, it's it's been uh, written about by all kinds of scholars over the Drawing. years. Drawing on the strength of the Krista Purana. <laughs> your, 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 your subtitle the subtitle of your book is uh, Cultural Translation in Christopurana. Why cultural translation? Say a word about that. Yeah. Uh, that would again be a very dangerous thing to do because in the, in the field of translation studies, cultural translation is a term that causes much anxiety and uh, we're constantly fighting with each other about uh, whether we should. Uh, luckily, um, generalizations are not only permitted but welcome on podcasts so you're safe <laughs> yeah yeah you, you might you might make me lose my job uh by talking about uh, all this. Uh, <laughs> uh, actually after this podcast they may consider you for promotion or raise so <laughs> okay um, yeah but this is a very 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 problematic uh but also very interesting term and i use this very consciously uh and deliberately in spite of all uh, the anxiety that it invokes among translation scholars. Uh, uh, so the, the term cultural translation um, has been used in this, this text, my work, uh, to make sense of the ways in which uh, cultural encounters and negotiations happen in the mission field and uh, how this cultural encounter gave rise to texts like the Christopurana. So uh, when you say cultural translation, I use it because it, it enables us uh, to foreground, to emphasize the cultural aspect, the aspect of uh, cultural encounter that leads to the composition of texts like the Christopurana. So these are not uh, mere linguistic transpositions. These are uh, texts that are a result of many, many, many complex uh, cultural negotiations. Uh, the way knowledge travels, uh, for example, the story of how 
the printed the printing press came to the region as well. Uh, Priyolka writes about it, and I have reproduced it in this book. Uh, so the Krishnapurana is also one of the earliest printed works in South Asia. It has that distinction as well. So uh, this was a printing press which was meant to go to Ethiopia, but. For some reason, the priest who was in charge, they had to stop at Goa and the priest died here in Goa. So the printing press stayed. So uh, a lot of lot of uh, interactions, cultural interactions and encounters, which uh, created the conditions necessary for the composition of a text like this. Uh, and the fact that these priests had to find ways strategize and find ways of talking to the hearts of the localites. And for that, they had to submerge themselves in the culture of the region. Uh, they could not speak from a distance. By speaking from a distance, you could have forced conversions. But if you really wanted these people uh, to be Christians, then you had to speak to their hearts, and for that, the Lok Bhasha was needed. For that, an immersion into the culture uh, was needed. So, uh, long before the Catholic Church uh, adopted the term enculturation, people like Stevens were uh, doing this through cultural translation. So, I use cultural translation. Uh, to foreground what people like Thomas Stevens were doing, doing uh, to bridge the gap between these very diverse cultures and in the process come up with com something completely new, uh, uh, a, a third thing that never existed before. Yeah, absolutely. The term, the term resonates. I mean, outside of the whatever that means for specialists, um, to resonates in common parlance insofar as the brilliance of Stevens to my mind. You know, my conversation with you, I really rarely, I never really mention other podcasts during podcasts, but I had a conversation with uh, Frank Clooney on a work called St. Joseph in South India. So it was sort of a parallel situation where I think the, the figure's name was Beshi, wrote a work in Tamil. Yes, and yes. uh, what strikes me, the brilliance of such people, why I find it fascinating is not just as a scholar, but someone who understands or tries to understand people and culture. And what's fascinating is that his brilliance is not just the intellectual acumen to learn a language or, or, or the poetic skill to, 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 to render, you know, render tales and in verse, you know, et cetera. It's that... Uh, Figures such as Stevens is astute to a cultural paradigm that they are able to digest. They, they take in, they don't throw it up, they take it in, they digest it, they chew their cud, so to speak, right? They're able to produce something from it. They, 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 they are changed by the process. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. and they are open to that transformation and it's fascinating because similarly we have in Indic culture, we have, you know, the fixity of the Vedic uh, revelations and then the, the utter fluidity, the Puranas, you know, they are fixed and anchored in their theological and spiritual convictions. And yet they're mm -hmm. open to, they're open to, 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 to the fluidity and transformation of culture. 
and they're yes. they're reaching people. They they they, they grok this salient um, uh, truth that um, even if you succeed in converting people in terms of their religious beliefs, you're not going to convert them culturally. This mm. is not going to happen. So you have to, uh, however you want to think of it, whether you think of it as Trojan horsing, or you think of it in a more benign way. But I really think that, to my mind, what's so fascinating about such figures is their knowledge and their instinctive knowledge of people and culture in addition to their intellectual knowledge. Absolutely. And I uh, I completely agree. And I use transformation quite a bit. And other scholars have written about this as well, of how uh, people like Stevens or Beshi for that matter, um, and uh, Francis Cloney has done wonderful work uh, with Roberto De Nobili as well, of how these people were even transformed physically uh, in their process of living here. It's uh, So they have to first be transformed in their bodies and mind before they are able to compose something of this uh, stature. Mm. And uh, because we are talking about transformation here, I will add a point which will also add to what we were saying about cultural translation. Uh, cultural translation also uh, enables us to bring to the discussion uh, South Asian ideas of what translation, the process itself looks, so non-Western ideas of translation, because in the Indian subcontinent, uh, translations have been ar around for a long time, but we never really theorized about it as seriously as scholars in the West did. And uh, for us, translations could be retelling, uh, it could be transformation, it is speaking after, uh, so using the cult term cultural translation is also a very conscious way of saying that uh, this is a very geographically rooted way of translating, uh, a culturally rooted way of translating that leads to the eventual transformation of the text uh, as well. The text no longer uh, remains the same as E.V. Ramakrishnan writes, the text then just remains a pretext and you come up with something completely new. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate that you point to a very different approach to both text and translation uh, in the South Asian context. You know, it's 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 fascinating. I was, um, uh, long story short, I ended up writing uh, a public book recently called "The Stories Behind the Poses," where I'm yes. telling telling vignettes from the epics and Puranas. And it's so difficult to convey to folks that somebody's tellings are, you know, direct translations and synopses and condensations. Um, clearly, these tellings will include embellishments and references even to the modern world. Yes. And that it's not this, the, 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 that it's a feature, not a bug, that these are renderings. Yes. And thereby they, they retain their, their, their relevance to, to whatever yes. historical paradigm. And so. Yeah, absolutely. Or as Stephen says, you're adding color to your painting and that should be allowed. Mm. Or as per South Asian translation traditions, those, that is how we've always retold and translated. So one final question for today. Um, what, what do you hope, most hope, folks would take away from this book? That is a difficult one to answer. You've saved the 
difficult one for the well, let's say let's say what would what, what would you say if there is an argument what's the gist i'm sure they'll take away a great many themes and experiences it's a rich rich work on a rich work but what do you what is what would you how would you characterize the work that the book is doing would you say uh, one that uh, the Krista Purana is the earliest retelling of the Bible in a South Asian language. And often because it was in poetic form, translation scholars have sort of ignored uh, that possibility. And we have to keep that in mind while studying the history of Bible translation in the subcontinent. Um, second, the sacred texts are important, especially when you're studying a region like South Asia. And people often dismiss it for its non-scientific nature or whatever it is people dismiss it for. And my argument is that you cannot study a region such as South Asia without studying its sacred texts, especially because we have such a beautiful, complex, rich uh, textual traditions. And we have to take those into account. So uh, a text like Krista Purana with so many intersecting uh, themes, you know, there's sacredness, there's uh, genre, there's colonialism. Uh, when you study these texts, you are able to look deeply into how translation functions, uh, how genre are transformed, uh, over, over space and time. Uh, and I, I hope that the readers will take away from my book that sacred texts ought to be studied with seriousness. Uh, um, the, the, the last chapter of the book is also important uh, where I talk about the transformation of landscapes where, um, you know, as the literary landscapes are transforming in these texts, the actual geographical landscapes of these regions are also transforming. New kinds of buildings are coming up, uh, new kinds of uh, uh, crops are being grown. The way the people relate to the land changes uh, in this process as well. Uh, so uh, I'm saying that translation can also be used as a critical lens uh, and the study of translated works uh, from South Asia can be used as a critical lens to understand this region much better, uh, understand how it evolved, why we are the way we are. And um, I, I, I hope that scholars will uh, take these sacred texts and translations much more seriously when they think about the region. Fantastic. Thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Raj. For those listening, we have, of course, been speaking with Dr. Annie Rachel Royson on this fascinating new Rutledge publication, Texts, Traditions, and Sacredness, which itself is on this fascinating work uh, that translates um, uh, the Bible into uh, Marathi, into poetic verse as a Purana. Um, I have no idea how that happened, but I'm glad that it did because this has been an excellent conversation. Until next time, uh, keep well, 
uh, keep listening and keep contemplating the complexities and power of translations, literary, cultural, and otherwise. Take care.